As we come to look at God's word, let us take a moment and let us present these offerings to him, but then let's take time to prepare ourselves to respond to his word. Let us pray. Father, our prayers have been focused quite a lot today on thanking you and praising you for what you have done in our lives. We thank you that we know your blessing in a very tangible way. And in response to that, we offer you these gifts. Things that we present to you, tokens, asking that you will take them and that you will use them so that your name will go forth in this place, in this community, through this island and into this world. And Lord, our hearts do ring with thankfulness because of Jesus Christ, because of the price that was paid so that we could go free. So as your people, we still ourselves. We still our hearts from the concerns of life for a moment so that we can hear you and see how you feed into our lives. Take us and make us your own with your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. We come to continue our look at Kings. Philip was glad that he didn't have the first part of chapter 4 to read. Unfortunately, I do. And as much as you practice at home with names, you're surprised at how they don't come out correctly whenever you have to say them. We're looking at 1 Kings chapter 4 through to 6 tonight. And I will be looking and seeing what God has to say to us from that. But to start with, if I would ask you to think of a leader, a leader you respect and admire, someone with a strong ability to lead, who would come into your mind? What characteristics do they have that set them apart from other people? Perhaps you would think of characters like Sir Winston Churchill or other prime ministers who have been formidable in their tasks. Perhaps leaders of teams that we've been on, whether it be through camps and missions, those who instructed us in, in how to undertake God's work. Leaders in our congregations, wherever we have come from, and indeed in this congregation where we now worship. What characteristics do they have that really impress on you their ability to lead? According to a recent article in a management magazine, there are eight key qualities to being a great leader. I'm a former business studies teacher, so we had to teach a little bit about management, and there's no way that you can do it in eight. In fact, the fact that they actually write eight different things kind of misses the point. Can you train a leader, or are you naturally a leader? But according to this magazine, things that they said for someone whom people will trust and respect, that's a quality of a great leader, someone whom people will trust and respect. They have to be a good communicator. They have to be enthusiastic so that they can engage people into what their message is or what their vision is. And they have to be someone who is willing to continue to learn and develop their skills. 
I don't know, whenever you were asked to think of a leader, I did say a great leader, but wherever you work, those who lead over you, your bosses, are those characteristics that, according to business today, are characteristics they have. But, of course, we're church, and we don't dabble in the world of business, so I thought, let me go to a Christian publication and see what they say about a great leader in the church. And they didn't have eight characteristics. They had 17 characteristics of what is a great leader. But some of them are quite interesting. The points included that someone to be a great leader had to be someone who was full of the spirit and wisdom. They had to have a single-minded devotion to God. And they had to have the wisdom to deal with failure. Things that we're told will shape what a leader is or, or who a leader is. It is obvious that a Christian leader will have different skills, uh, perspective, a different perspective on how they lead compared to that of a secular leader. But one characteristic that will be looked for is that of wisdom. How will they lead? How will they engage? How will they make things right when things go wrong? The wisdom to make decisions. The wisdom to deal with difficult circumstances. Last week, as we started looking together at the life of Solomon in 1 Kings, we saw that when offered anything that he wanted, the one thing he asked for was wisdom. 1 Kings chapter 3 and verse 9. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this people of yours? His motive was right. He wanted to do God justice in leading God's people. He recognized that they were a difficult people. And he wanted to lead them in a way that was right and pleasing to God. I'm sure as we know our Old Testament stories, we can sympathize with Solomon. We've seen that God had a plan of salvation as we're thinking in Exodus about saving his people. God had that plan, but time and time and time and time again, the people went their own way rather than God's. These were a difficult people, and Solomon asks for wisdom. Later in chapter 3, we looked at the account of Solomon's wise ruling regarding the two prostitutes. And it is noted by the author that in verse 28, when all Israel heard the verdict the king had given, they, hurled the, sorry, they held the king in awe, because they saw that he had wisdom from God to administer justice. This account shows us that in Solomon using his wisdom in a just way, it was recognized by the people as wisdom from God. Whether Solomon fitted into the seven or, or eight or 17 characteristics of being a leader, there's no doubt that he was a great leader. And we will discover that tonight as we look at the story in First Kings. He is someone who loved and res was respected by the people, but also someone who demonstrates good and wise leadership. And the first thing we will look at as we see this, we will look at God's perspective. Because Solomon was God's tool. And so we will look at how God kept his promises and fulfilled them through Solomon. At this point in the history of Israel, Israel is in its heyday. It's a golden era for it. Verses 20 and 21 of chapter 4 give us a picture of what life was like in Solomon's kingdom. 
The people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They ate, they drank, and they were happy. And Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines, as far as the border of Egypt. These countries brought tribute and were Solomon's subjects all his life. In these verses, we see God keeping his promises. Here we have a picture of the people Solomon ruled over. They've grown in number. They are a nation. They are a people who were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Does it sound familiar? Is it something we recognize? The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 22, verses 15 to 18. A promise or a covenant. A covenant with Abraham after he was willing to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. He promised Abraham that he would make his people into a great people and that he would be their God. And here we have the promise fulfilled in Solomon's reign. The second thing to notice from this, or these few verses is the extent of the land. The land that Solomon ruled over, it doesn't get any bigger than this. It is noticed that it is what Solomon inherited from David. Solomon didn't expand it, but took it from David as he ascended to the throne. In today's terms, it is modern Israel. It's the Palestinian territories. It is part of Egypt and part of Jordan and part of Syria. This was his kingdom. This is the promised land. Again, the promise that was given to Abraham, Jacob, Moses, that God's people would have their own land and it is fulfilled. This is it. God's promise has been fulfilled again, this time with the regard to the land the people know it well. The people own it. They have the right to it. They know that it is a land flowing with milk and honey, the promised land. The third promise fulfilled is that of peace. God had promised David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. God had promised David that there would be a rest from all his enemies. The people knew peace. They were prosperous and they were happy. Verse 24 and 25 in uh, chapter 4, For he ruled over all the kingdoms west of the river, from Tisha to Gaza, And had peace on all sides. During Solomon's lifetime, Judah and Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, lived in safety, each man under his own vine and fig tree. God again kept his promise. 
Even though it was hundreds of years after he made them, he still kept them. He made sure his people knew peace. He made sure his people had a land to inherit that he had promised them. And he made sure that he was their God. God has made promises to us. As we read it throughout scripture, as we hear it from this pulpit, God has made promises. He has promised to never leave us or forsake us. We read that in Hebrews 13 as it is quoting Joshua 1. He has promised that he will make us his own. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, Acts 16. As we have started thinking about 1 Kings and the sovereignty of God, that God is in control of everything, even though we don't understand how he can be in the wickedness that we see around us, can we trust in his promises? Can we trust in the fact that he has said he will never leave us and he will never forsake us? He has promised that he will take us as his own as we trust in his son. Can we claim the truths that we read and hear? Can we claim them as our own? In this passage, we see God at work. He has fulfilled everything he promised. Take this encouragement, that as the children of Israel knew the fulfillment of what God had promised them to their ancestors, so take the encouragement that he will see us through whatever difficulties we may face, and he will lead us into refreshing times, times of fellowship, times of joy with him. This is our God, the God who makes promises. The people were content. What is upsetting your life right now? What is it that troubles us and gives us the difficulties? I encourage you, know and claim the promises that God has made and take the confidence the confidence that is needed for the next step. Trusting in him to be who he has said that he will be, our sovereign God. He is the God of promises. We read them being fulfilled in this chapter. But we know, as we looked at last week, that Solomon was gifted by God. Solomon asked for wisdom and he got it. And so Solomon uses the gift that God gave him We have seen that the people were numerous. And with a sizable population as this, can you imagine the administration that was needed to make sure that life was kept in order? Solomon wanted to run his country effectively. And so at the start of chapter 4, we see what must be an impressive organization of government. Solomon organizes his kingdom He appoints 12 chief officials to oversee the running of his court and the whole land. And here are the people whom he has to do those tasks. I should start off and say, why do we go through them? Well, hopefully as we do, we will see connections uh, that we have seen before, uh, that we've looked at as we started this, and indeed as we looked at the story of David. So the first, Azariah was a priest. He was the son of Zadok, 
It is widely believed that Zadok is the priest named in verse 4 that will come later. And Azariah succeeded Zadok. Elihoreth and Ahijah were secretaries. And Jehoshaphat was the recorder. Again, the commentators are split on this. And they say that these rules seem very Egyptian. Because they recognize them from Egyptian history. And I suppose we shouldn't be surprised at this as Solomon married the king of Egypt's daughter. He may have looked to his father-in-law for advice in running the country. But it is believed that the secretaries managed the king's home and foreign correspondence, and that the job of the recorder was to liaise between the king, his decrees, his laws, and the public. Next, we move on to Benaiah. He is the commander-in-chief. And here we have Zadok appearing again. It's not surprising to see these two names mentioned. In this list, they're also mentioned in 1 Kings chapters 1 and 2 as those who supported Solomon. The two sons of Nathan are mentioned in this list. Nathan was the prophet who had served David. Azariah was in charge of the district officers, and Zabad was a priest and personal advisor to the king. Paul House's comments that Solomon definitely follows David's advice to punish enemies and to repay friends. If you can remember that scene that we looked at at the start of First Kings. Ahishar and Adoniram complete the list. Ahishar was in charge of the palace. This would become an important job as the palace would expand and grow. Adoniram's job was that of being in charge of forced labor. And I'm sure this was one of the most difficult jobs in court. There were many building projects that Solomon undertook and he would require forced labor from Israel and from the vassal nations that would pay tribute to him. This was Solomon's top 12. Looking at the structure, we can see that it is a well thought out style of government. But why are they here? Why this list? Why the list of districts and the district officers that come after that portion at the start of chapter 4. Because these district officers would ensure the supply uh, food for the king's court and table. Another commentator, Dale Ralph Davies, comments that this is evidence of the wisdom God gave Solomon. The text implies that God's gift of wisdom extends to the ordering of life and affairs. Solomon's wisdom ensured that his people were safe, that there was a structure, that people knew what was what. And as they lived in this nation that God had given them, through Solomon's wisdom, they had that security. This was something they needed. They needed this structure. Even more so, whenever you read the list of provisions or that was read for us for the king and the royal household in verses 22 to 23. It was no easy task to provide this on a daily basis. But yet they were happy and they were secure. The extent of our knowledge of Solomon's wisdom is given to us at the end of chapter 4. We are told that his wisdom, which was God-given, was greater than that of any other. He spoke proverbs and he wrote songs. He described plant life and he taught about animals and birds and reptiles and fish. Solomon used his gift of wisdom in every aspect of life. 
whether we know it or not, or whether we realize it or not, we have gifts from God. We have gifts that we can use in service. No matter who we are, no matter what our age is, no matter where we come from, as people who follow Jesus Christ, he has equipped us for the tasks that he has set for us. This morning we were thinking of Moses and how really he didn't want to do that job of going on God's behalf to free God's people. And so we have to be reminded again, do we shy away like Moses? Even though we know and we would agree biblically we have gifts, we have talents and abilities, but do we shy away? Or do we embrace the opportunities that God gives us to use those gifts every day for him? Because it's either one or the other. We embrace it or we shy from it, we turn from it. Although Solomon is recorded as having wisdom beyond all others, God does promise us wisdom. In James chapter 1, verses 5 to 8, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. In this passage, we are told that we must be prepared for difficulties in life. The start of James says, Consider a pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. But these things come our way because they enable us to mature in faith. But God doesn't leave us on our own. He doesn't leave us to be upset. He doesn't leave us to be uncomfortable, not knowing where we are going. He provides wisdom. Wisdom to deal with situations. Wisdom to order life. Wisdom to know God. How are we in life? Are we tossed about and unstable? Does life seem so chaotic that there is no calmness anymore? And indeed, calmness may never come. But we are promised that God will give us wisdom when we ask for it. Ask for it and believe. Don't be like a wave of the sea. Have you ever stood and watched the sea? It truly is an amazing sight, and we've all done it. We see the waves rolling in, still not able to understand what it is that makes it happen. But if you were to go beneath and watch what happens underneath the water, you will see a great rising wave forming and raising to its great heights, but then crashing to the depths of the sea. God doesn't want us to be unstable. He wants us to know him, to ask him for what we need, most of all wisdom, and to believe that he is the God who has promised And he is the God who will fulfill. As we move on from chapter 4, we go into chapter 5 and 6. We're going to take a, a sweeping look at what the key points are in these passages. They are focused on the temple. The building of the temple that David wanted but was not allowed to build. So Solomon's ascension to the throne 
has made one of David's allies come to support him. Hiram, king of Tyre, had always been friendly or in friendly terms with David. Because of the blood that was in David's hands, he couldn't build this temple. That's why he wasn't allowed to do it, because he was a man of war. So Solomon makes his intention known as we read in chapter 5. Hiram sends uh, ambassadors or envoys to meet with Solomon. And Solomon sends a letter back and he gives his intention in it that he intends on building a temple, a temple for God. And Solomon asks for supplies, namely cedars of Lebanon. Plans are now in play for the construction of the temple of the Lord. So Solomon gets to work. He starts putting the plans in place. But right in the middle of chapter 5, we are shown again how God reinforces the use of Solomon's wisdom in dealing with Hiram and the building of the temple. If you are an architect or a building contractor or indeed someone who likes statistics and and looking at these things, you're going to love chapter 6 because chapter 6 is all about the details of the temple that was constructed. Every little detail. The details start right in verse 1 by recording that the temple was started 480 years after the people came out of Egypt. When they left Egypt, that was the end of their bondage and the gift of freedom. And now as they embark on the building of the temple, they have come to the end of their wanderings and are given the gift of rest by truly settling in the promised land. And what comes next is a description of the exterior, the interior, the entrances and the courtyard of how they were constructed. The splendor mentioned shows the respect and love that people would show to God in building a house for him to dwell. God is not ashamed to speak to us about measurements and stone cuts, about cedars and storerooms. He is in the detail. Halfway through this chapter, another promise is made to Solomon. God says that he will now fulfill the promise made to David that he will live among the Israelites and not abandon his people. God will be there with his people. That is the promise that he gives Solomon as he made to David. Proving that God is not remote. God is not distant. The purpose of the temple was a place of worship, yes, and a place where God could dwell. He could be with his people. God is interested in you, and he is interested in me. He is interested in every aspect of our lives, the public and the private. He keeps his promises. We have seen this tonight. There's no getting around it. We have seen God in his sovereignty, knowing years in advance of what he would do. As we think of that, of the promises answered, of the sovereignty of God, of how he is not remote, will you let him in or will you keep him out? Will you open every aspect of your life, not keeping anything back from him? God desires us to be his people, a people who know him, a people who love him, and who desire to serve him. God keeps his promises. 
It's great to be reminded of that because that is what gives us the confidence to go tomorrow and the next day and the next day. He gives gifts, including wisdom, so that we can effectively serve him. And he is not remote, but he is right here in the midst of our lives, every little detail. What will we do with this? Will we be his people not holding back, but giving our all to him, giving our hopes, our fears, our intellect? Will we trust him to go out from here? I attended a a church in England when I was at university in Huddersfield Town. It's a church that is now closed. But on the door, they had the greatest little sign I've ever seen in a church. It was a laminated A4 page on the half of the door that was never opened. And it said, you are leaving church and entering the mission field. I don't know what you think about things like that. We things stuck on doors. But for me, a reminder that as comfortable as I was hearing God speak through his word, as comfortable as I was singing praise to his name, I had to face the real world with all its difficulties, with all its challenges. Will you do the same? Something I've been introduced to since coming to Kirkpatrick Memorial is church, society, and change. We live in a land that seems to have no hope whatsoever. But we know hope. We know Christ as our Savior. We know the mission field that need to hear him. Will we go with him? Will we trust him? Will we give everything of ourselves knowing that he will lead the way? The challenge is prepare yourself before God. Trust in him and in his word and give everything over to him. Solomon was a great leader in how he organized using his wisdom, his God-given wisdom, his gifts and abilities, being equipped for that service. He was someone who knew how to worship his God. He knew who his God was. Do we know who God is so that we can go out and be his people? May he give us the grace and the insight of heart to carry this through and to be his people. Let's pray.